Hello, everyone. This is the Connected Family Podcast, episode number 22. This podcast is produced by Connections Family Counseling, LLC, a group counseling practice located in Quincy, Illinois, that helps build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. My name is Mark Vanderlei, and I'm your host. Today's episode is all about interpersonal neurobiology for parents and partners. My guest is Robin Goebel, licensed clinical social worker and registered play therapist supervisor. She has over 15 years of practice in family and play therapy while specializing in complex trauma, attachment, and adoption. She's a therapist, trainer, and consultant who recently relocated to Grand Rapids, Michigan from Austin, Texas. She has diverse clinical training, including EMDR, somatic experiencing, TheraPlay, trust-based relational intervention, circle of security, parent education, the ALERT program, and yoga pudics, aerial yoga level one teacher training. She's integrated these training modalities with a foundation of attachment theory and the relational neurosciences to create an attachment-rich, sensory-sensitive, and relational neurosciences-supported healing environment for children and families. Needless to say, uh, Robin is a wonderful therapist, has lots of information to share with us as parents and partners relating interpersonal neurobiology, and I'm incredibly excited to have her on the podcast today. So enjoy now my conversation with Robin Goebel. Welcome and thank you for being here. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's great to be here with you today. Awesome. Um, so I oh, just wanting to start out here this morning with some introductions. Kind of, I would hope that you would tell us about yourself and the work that you do and uh, maybe even how you got started in it. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I've been practicing clinically as a therapist for 15 years. My area of expertise has always been working with kids with complex trauma and their families. I mean, 15 years ago, that wasn't exactly what we were calling it. But if I look back in the populations I've always you know, been interested in and really prioritized working with, that describes you know, the, the families I've always loved to work with. Um, and so for 15 years, I had a clinical practice in Austin, Texas. And for about the last five, there was four of us that all did the same kind of work and we worked together and we shared office space. And that was so rich, like for us as clinicians, but also for our clients, you know, who mm -hmm. were, had the ability to come to this place where they knew like everybody, everybody who came there was, was really coming there for the same reason, mm -hmm. which um, was a really cool environment to create. Um, and then this past, gosh, it's 2020 now, but so we can say last year now, <laughs> Uh, my husband and I, we have a 13-year-old son, and we just decided that we were ready for a different lifestyle. We wanted life to be slower and cheaper and more, more time for us and more family time. And so I worked at um, kind of wrapping up my clinical practice in Austin, and we relocated to outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is okay. where um, I grew up. Okay. So we kind of came home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so that's sort of move. my personal journey. Yeah. yeah. No, it was a huge move. Yeah. <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah. yeah it was big. Yeah. My, my wife is from Midland, Texas. And so oh, yeah. uh, we would go to Texas often to visit her family. We live in the Midwest and cold yep. country. So it's been yep. an adjustment for her. But Texas is a nice place. The Midwest is a nice place. 
Yeah, you know, we loved Texas. And, and when people ask us, we are so clear, like Texas, Texas and Austin in particular was so good to us. Like yeah. I had such a rich practice. We had rich community. Like our lives were so good <laughs> in Texas. Yeah. And and everybody else thought Austin was a great place to live too. <laughs> and so it's literally the fastest growing city in the country, which wow. just is cool, but has a lot of stuff that goes along mm-hmm. with that. And I was driving over an hour to get to work every day. Oh, and wow. yeah, we were just ready for a totally new lifestyle. Awesome. And so here we are. Cool. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, and so then, so you've been working in the field for a long time and mm-hmm. uh, interpersonal neurobiology is a mouthful of words, yeah, but something it is. definitely that I see in my observations of the work that you do that you yep. talk about a lot. Yes. And so give us some information there and kind of maybe even more of an introduction about how you were introduced to interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah. So, um, interpersonal neurobiology is, mo- we yeah. sure? well, yes, we can. <laughs> um, so the acronym is IPNB, so okay. we can call it IPNB. And then sometimes I'll say the relational neurosciences, which is a little bit broader even than interpersonal neurobiology, but okay. most of your, probably your listeners are familiar with interpersonal neurobiology without even realizing it. If they've read any books by Dan Siegel. So, mm-hmm. you know, whole brain child, you know, yes, brain, no drama discipline, all these like really Mm -hmm. popular parenting books. I assume a lot of your listeners have probably been exposed to just Mm -hmm. published a new book like Tuesday, I think of this week. Um, so he really is kind of the founder of this new field, interpersonal neurobiology, new back in the Mm nineties. Um, and it's a one, it brings together a lot of fields. So when you look at what's influenced interpersonal neurobiology, the list is long. I mean, it's physics and biology and psychology and anthropology. So it's, it really brings together all these various fields of study mm-hmm. um, and then emphasizes the relationship between the mind, the body and relationships. So there's this kind of triangle of well-being in the mind, body and relationships and how they impact each other. And the kind of core foundational belief that the, the mind and the brain then is this extremely relational organ that mm. it develops in relationship. It's functioning optimally inside relationship connection. It, it's baseline is being in connection with one another, which is sort of, you know, back in the nineties was a new way to look at the brain as Mm -hmm. this highly relational um, organ. And so IPMB really is a very, is a multidisciplinary theory of human development. Like it's not exactly a clinical theory. Mm -hmm. It sort of lays underneath my clinical theory because it is so cross-discipline. I mean, doctors study IPNB. I mean, I think everybody, if the whole world studied IPNB, like we'd solve a lot of problems. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I know. I think you recently, you recently wrote a blog post as I'm following you about uh-huh. human informed as opposed to trauma and trauma informed. Right. IPNB. Like just taking one more step. So much about that person that I'm sitting across with is a human being and there's yeah. tons of stuff going on inside of them. And that yep. influences everything happening between us. Exactly. And it's just knowing that and understanding that, yep. I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then understand for me, it's been about understanding it in a real embodied way. I mean, there's, it's one thing to kind of understand something didactically or from this left brain fact-based way, hmm. um, which is very comfortable for me. I really like to learn lots of things. Um, but I was introduced, you know, like I was introduced to Siegel's work back in probably like 2011. Um, so he was not new at that time. He'd been, you know, he published his seminal work again in like the late nineties. Um, so I, as a young-ish clinician still in 2011, was introduced to his work and um, just over the, the adored it, like mm -hmm. the way it brought together um, the brain and science. And it felt like it was taking the, what, what can feel like a soft science of mental health or psychology or relationship mm -hmm. and helping us understand why, you know, why therapy is relationally driven mm -hmm. um, and why it works. And that was, that's not important to everyone, but that is, and or maybe more was really important to me yeah. to kind of move past like, well, everybody says the relationship's the most important thing and that makes sense. But how do we really know that? And IPNB is really helping us understand the why. Yeah. Well, I think um, back to his book, um, the developing mind, right. which is the first one that I read by him and just blew my mind, opened it up to that whole field mm -hmm. and is like, oh yeah, this is why the relationship is so important. Talking right. about the neural networks and the development yep. of all those connections that happen in relationship yeah. with other people. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you, you mentioned learning about it in more of an embodied way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Tell me more about that. So when it, for I'll tell you sort of my journey because I think that's probably the easiest way for me to even articulate what does embodied mean. <laughs> um, but I I am someone who really likes to first learn facts. I feel safe in facts. I feel safe in knowledge. If you can give me a test and I can get an A on it, I am I'm cool with that. <laughs> and so I first approached it in that way. Like I'm just going to learn everything I can possibly learn about this, um, and then. In 2015, I met who has now become my primary mentor, Bonnie Badenoch, who has written some also very important books in the IPNB world. She wrote How to Be, you know, or Being a Brainwise Therapist. Um, her newest book is Heart of Trauma. And it was through working with Bonnie where she was able to teach in a way that we didn't just learn the facts. Hmm. we developed in our own bodies, like a felt sense of what does this information mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my clients? And the way that we did that was by learning the information in, in relationships. So hmm. inside a learning environment, a small group learning environment that was long-term and hmm. allowed us to have the opportunity to really get to know one another. And then, um, one partner in particular that we developed a close relationship with that we would practice then, you know, taking this pretty left brain information and then shifting it into cultivating kind of a new way of being and just practicing presence wow. with one another. Yeah. That's really intense. It sounds yeah. to be. It was very intense. <laughs> yes. 
And I guess I can see how directly it relates to the counseling relationship where you're wanting to take that experience that you've had in training with one other individual yep, and be able to do that probably with your clients when you're in the room with them. Is that kind of the idea? Absolutely. I mean, it's so, it, so I've, in the last couple months, I've started teaching the science of interpersonal neurobiology for a certificate program that's after, offered through Portland Community College. Mm -hmm. And that's um, one of the pieces that we just keep touching back into is that this is a person, this is personal and professional. Like IPNB moves way beyond like a theoretical orientation that drives my work and has become a part of like who I am and how I move through the world and how it impacts all my relationships, you know, personal, professional, my child, my spouse, my family, um, my relationship with myself. Mm. Um, and then it, it makes sense then that would inevitably show up and impact work with clients. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so of course that impacts the way that parents parent their children. Yes. Uh, and can have a transformative experience for them. I just remember learning. So the first training that I would say really connected me to attachment theory, uh -huh. which is integrated there I think mm -hmm. in those in that world is yes it I is went through fair play training mm -hmm. yeah and that training just transformed me as mm -hmm. a father uh, mm -hmm. I actually spoke with Karen not long ago Karen Buckwalter who was my trainer in that yep um just like how much it transformed me as a person yeah. yep um and as a therapist and so I yeah. think that's what you're talking about is this is personal and professional which is awesome yeah, well, I think through an IPNB lens and through an attachment lens, and attachment is a big piece of interpersonal neurobiology that we're using ourselves as part of the healing agent. Mm. And so it would be impossible to keep these things separate. There's this guy, a quote came to my mind as you were talking, Henry mm -hmm. Nowen, who's like a theological writer type of a guy. He, and uh -huh. he wrote, there's no... I don't have it exactly. This is a paraphrase, but there's no, no piece of loneliness or no part of loneliness that the presence of another human being can't solve or yeah. something like that. All yeah. about presence. And that's what right. we're talking about really yeah. being present. Yes. Um, so if, if we're talking to parents, what would be sort of the main tenets of IPNB? When I am talking with parents, I really want to start to give some basic, simple understanding of the way that the brain develops and that the brain develops inside relationship. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there, you know, culturally, historically, you know, we've, we have these beliefs, I think, about people and about children that don't match up with what we currently understand through an interpersonal neurobiology lens mm. um, that in order for people to make the right choices or, you know, cooperate with other people that they have to be motivated to do that in some way, or that we have to punish them in order to get people to act their best. And sort of this belief that like left to their own devices, humans are, you know, only out for themselves and they're inherently selfish and, and we have to, we have to do something really explicit in order to prompt humans to act their best mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and some of, some of that's generational that we could really study and make a lot of sense about, about why we have come to believe that. Um, but it, in 2020, it doesn't appear as though that's true <laughs> that, 
humans and our brains and our minds and our systems are, are in, inherently relational. Like we are born to be in a connected relationship with someone else. Our brain literally develops inside the co-regulated relationship with somebody else, which I know you know. And our baseline, um, there's a theory called social baseline theory. Like our baseline is connection. We want to be in connection with other people and we're created in a way that means we're going to be our kind of optimal or truest selves when we're in connection with other people. And so when I hold that truth and then I, and I work with kids with really significant behavioral challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, but so if I hold the truth that like all humans are designed to be in relationship, but this child's behavior is really pushing me not to want to be in relationship with them. And it's pushing their parents and their teachers and their peers, right? Like this child's behaving in a way that's making people be like, ah, ah, yeah, no. Then that's where I say, okay, so that's the place to pause and go, why? Like if we're driven to be in connection relationship with each other, what's happening in this moment, you know, whether it look like severe dysregulation and we've got physical violence going on, which honestly big behaviors like that are typically a little easier for people to Mm -hmm. kind of put into context or is it a smaller behavior like lying or manipulation? Cause these are, these are behaviors that push people away, Mm -hmm. but we're not designed to push people away. So let's take that one step further and go, why are we, you know, why is this person, whether it be our child or the person at, who's checking us out at the grocery store or mm-hmm. our spouse in this moment, yeah. you know, um, and if we can pause and get curious about the why, then we can attempt to impact what's driving the behavior. I mean, I, I always say like behavior is just the, you know, the thing we can see mm-hmm. that's giving us information about what's happening on the inside. That's all it is. It's just an externalization of what's happening internally. Yeah. Um, and it always matches. It always matches. So what's going on inside mm-hmm. and let's get at that. Um, and I think that really is the heart of interpersonal neurobiology. Like yeah. how do we get connected? How do we help provide felt safety? How do we bring about regulation? Yeah. So you um, talked about how, you know, it's like we, we live in a culture really that's oriented, oriented towards this old sort of relational approach, or at least with parenting, which is about, as you were describing, it sounded be very behavioral. So like, yes, I do a, they do B. Right. And that's how I get them to clean their room because it's exactly. a behavioral modification type of a thing. Right. Right. Whereas, right. How will they ever learn? Those kinds of questions. Yeah. Come up. Yep. Uh, if they don't know that this is, you know, if I don't give them a punishment about this thing that they did, then they're not going to understand consequences and all that sort of stuff. And they're going to turn out to be murderers someday or something. Exa- right. <laughs> they go to this deep, tragic place, yes. which I'm a parent. I get that. Like, yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. But then what we know, what yeah. you're saying in 2020 is that um, it's not about behavior modification. <laughs> Uh, actually behaviors tend to change when the relationship and right. when is enhanced and when the person has their needs met right so that they can connect with you because i think what you're you know in that sort of pushing away what are where are these behaviors coming from 
often I think we find that they're coming from a place of fear or yeah. protecting oneself or something going on inside and yeah. seeking to understand what's happening on the inside is the big part of IP and D. Yeah. And so Dan Siegel articulates these nine domains of integration and he okay. talks about integration as basically being synonymous with like mental wellness, mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we see something that is not synonymous with mental health or mental well-being, a behavior, the symptoms that that bring people into therapy, the diagnostic criteria and the DSM, those types of things that we really can look at and conceptualize those symptoms and behaviors through um, the lens of integration. And he has these nine different domains of Mm -hmm. integration. And if we can gather some idea about where there may be a lack of integration for someone else, that helps us with some ideas about how we might be able to help them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then holding at the same time, holding the belief um, that human beings are complex systems and complex systems. If we take that from like the sciences field, Mm -hmm. um, complex systems are um, driven to find organization Um, So as they disorganize, there's still a part of them that's trying to find its way back to organization. And the same is true about humans. Mm -hmm. And I think especially when we work with kids or people with really serious behavioral problems, we forget that part. Like we forget that in addition to this really, truly problematic behavior, truly problematic Mm -hmm. behavior, it's problematic for the person, it's problematic for other people that at the same time, there's still a part of them that is trying to find organization, still trying to find coherence, still trying to find Mm -hmm. connection. Is it possible that that behavior is their best attempt at finding that organization? So although it doesn't work, that behavior is not working very well in the school context or the family context, but they're doing their best. And that behavior is it. I I completely believe that. Um, I probably one of like the pivotal moments in my career was when I heard again, who's she's now my mentor, but it was in a conference. Bonnie Badenoch said, "There's no such thing as maladaptive. Mm. All behavior is adaptive." In that exact moment, based on and now we can use words like neuroception from polyvagal theory mm. and all these other ideas, but in that ex- in any exact moment based on what's happening for a person internally, relationally, in the environment, their behavior matches what their nervous system believes is the best thing to do in that moment. Mm. And at the same time, we can be objective about that and be like, long-term, that behavior's not really working. (laughs) But in that moment, it's exactly what that person's system believes is needed in Mm. order to keep the kind of semblance of coherence or organization that they have in that moment. And for kids Mm. with really serious complex trauma, that's minimal. Like these kids feel disorganized, out of control. um, And they're always just trying to. And that's where the behavior is such a sign of what's happening on the inside, right? So if it's a behavior that's pushing us away, Mm -hmm. then that's a sign of, oh, there's something happening on the inside that the child doesn't feel safe or there's a need that needs, um, is, has not been met. And so if I can meet that, figure that out then right 
we get to a better place. Right. Absolutely. And you know, so the reality is sometimes we can't always meet other people's needs. Mm -hmm. And this, I think becomes more true in a more, um, you know, mutual relationship, like with our partners or our Mm -hmm. friends. Um, but even with our kids, right. There's times where it's like, I can't fix this Mm -hmm. thing that's happening. Um, so even if I can't fix it or I can't meet the need that's needed in order for that kid to feel okay, um, and to be okay, I I'm still using a new lens. And so, it's a compassionate lens. It allows, frankly, it allows me to feel better. It allows me to tolerate the behavior better. It allows me to offer more co-regulation um, as opposed to like a punishment or withdrawal mm-hmm. of, you know, attention or co-regulation. So yeah. again, even when we can't meet the need and we can't quote unquote fix the problem, this lens allows us, I think, to stay more regulated and then to stay more present, engaged, and co-regulated in the relationship. Absolutely. That was one of the biggest things for me when I started to learn about this is, you know, my kid's not just being a pain in the butt. They're not trying to piss me off. Right. Right. (laughs) Even though it feels that way. And I really want to- Totally. If I have that new lens and I see it as a sign of something that's happening on the inside, then it's not, I don't have to get all pissed off about it because it's not about me. Right. It's about them. And so I can hopefully in my best moments- Approach exactly. Things, <laughs> approach things from a new way. Yeah. Which is much more helpful. Well, and I love how you just said, like, in your best moments, because I always make sure I, you know, when I start to talk and teach about this, I always mm-hmm. make sure I say, perfection is not required. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, perfection would be terrible. If we were always meeting our kids' needs 100% of the time, they actually wouldn't grow the stress resilience system that they need in order mm-hmm. to be okay out in the world. Um, but we also don't have to mess up kind of quote unquote on purpose or give ourselves a free pass per se, because we mess up just because we're humans. Right. And so there's no need to be harsh or critical towards ourselves when, you know, we do react to negative behavior. I mean, I have good days and I have bad days and some days I'm rocking it as Mm -hmm. a mom and I'm able to say like, huh, it seems like you've had a bad day at school. <laughs> Tell me more about what's going on. Or, you know, and other times I just like flare up and meet him in his dysregulation the same way as like every other parent yeah. I've ever met does. Yeah. And the yeah. grace comes in the fact that there are things that you're going through, the th- things that I'm going through that are impacting yeah. my responses. And if I can be compassionate to myself and understanding yep. that, but also reflective and knowing, okay, uh, exactly go very well and what am i going to do next time to hopefully do a better job of that absolutely reflective with ourselves mm-hmm. always trying you know and then repairing with our kids you know like yeah. whoops that didn't go well sorry about that buddy yeah. like mom's working on that or whatever. yeah yeah you've used the term co-regulation several times uh-huh. i know that's a that's language that therapists use all the time <laughs> i'm not sure if parents use that term so much tell me tell us some more about that Sure. So, okay. So regulation, the idea of like having balance in our, our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And, um, so co-regulation is about the reality that humans turn to one another for support with their internal regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, we do this as adults still, even though we're we've developed a lot of our own kind of self-regulation skills and Mm -hmm. capacities. Um, But, you know, things get bad enough. I'm, I 
am reaching out to my husband or to my best friend or things are awesome enough, right? Mm. It's not just when things are bad. It's just intense emotion, good or bad, that we're really turning towards. And if we're not literally turning towards that person for for some co-regulation, we're almost always drawing them to mind, Mm. right? Like something's happening internally that brings that person into us. Yeah. Um, but with kids who don't have those capacities yet, especially if we start talking about like babies and toddlers, mm-hmm. right? That babies, you know, don't come into the world with the ability to soothe. Mm-hmm. They come into the world with the ability to get, you know, really aroused and crying and crying and crying. But anyone who's parented a tiny baby knows that babies only soothe because the adult, the caregiver goes in to soothe them. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only does the caregiver go in to soothe them, but the caregiver has to go in with their own soothing mm-hmm. nervous system, right? So if my baby's crying and I'm really anxious about it and I can't calm down and, and I'm thinking this makes me a bad mom or, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? And I, that's, really um, decreases my ability to offer Mm -hmm. any kind of co-regulation. So the offering of co-regulation is first I'm, I'm regulated. Yeah. And then I can use my regulated nervous system to, in a way I'm lending it to the other person. Mm -hmm. And that actually literally is happening. If we look at the heart and the brain and the kind of the energetic field that's happening around our bodies. Um, We are literally in mirror neurons too. We're Mm -hmm. literally offering ourselves and our regulation Mm -hmm. to the other person and babies and toddlers. That's how they build their regulatory capacities. Like that's actually like it actually changes the structures of their nervous system Mm -hmm. when they're given this kind of co-regulation Um, which allows them to grow into bigger people who have their own self-regulation. But again, I like to be clear, like, like there's no expectation Mm -hmm. that even adults always just self-regulate, right? We're always turning toward one another for support with our emotions. Absolutely. Well, as you've been talking about um, with IP and B, it's like we're designed to have some capacity to regulate as individuals and, Mm -hmm. but also to turn towards that other um, capa- other person yep. who helps us to regulate. And so ideally we would all have someone who we would go to. Um, I like how you talked about basically if, if they're not present in, in our space with us, there's someone that we're mentalizing that we're yeah. bringing to our mind. It could be across the country. It could be um, yeah. someone that we have in our life who represents that for us. Yes. So important as well. Yeah. And I like how you just mentioned too, because I can get so heavy talking about relationship that I accidentally make it sound like IPNB is sort of, is about sort of losing self into connection relationship is absolutely not. Like IPNB recognizes that there's always the me and the you and how we come together to form a we and that they're Mm -hmm. all important. Mm -hmm. That having a we and having a relationship doesn't mean sacrificing ourselves and and really losing ourselves, um, that that would not be, Dan Dan would say that that would not be, you know, integration, um, that we maintain our sense of self, but we also maintain our capacity, um, for connection. Yeah. That's that, it's that balance between independence and dependence and sort of 
the, the ability to go out and explore and be independent yet also the ability to come back and be dependent and yeah in a reciprocal manner uh with folks um yeah. what do you think how do you think this relates to a partner relationship so we've been talking about it a lot in the context of parenting but it also is very applicable for couples tell me your thoughts on that well, i think it's applicable to just relationships in general um things shift a little again when you start to there are some major differences between a parent-child relationship, how you can set boundaries, all that kind of good stuff, and a more like mutual partner, you know, adult consenting partnership. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's about moving through the world with understanding that people aren't their behaviors, and that in you know in my partnership, usually one of us is just a teeny bit more regulated than the other. <laughs> And no matter who's right or wrong, the person who has a little bit more regulation has the opportunity to pause, mm -hmm. offer regulation, offer connection, or set a boundary, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like continuing to escalate or continuing to, you know, judge. Or we we take people's behaviors and we make these sweeping character judgments mm. about them that usually again, and I'm. I'm speaking really specifically to, you know, healthy adult partnerships that, mm -hmm. um, you know, when people aren't dysregulated would be described as, you know, safe and satisfying and mutual. Mm -hmm. um, this doesn't apply necessarily to, or not necessarily, this doesn't apply to relationships that are, you know, abusive or coercive right. mm -hmm. um, by any means. But, but the best of us get, you know, frustrated or dysregulated or irritated and, um, you know, when I, again, one, I can remember like this behavior isn't indicative of character <laughs> and two, you know, who has the more, who has more regulation in this moment mm -hmm. and can that person, again, even if they're quote unquote, right, be the one who reprioritizes the relationship and their partner over you know, who's right or, you know, mm -hmm. winning, yeah, winning an love, argument. I love that idea of reprioritizing the relationship. I often yeah. talk, I work with adolescents and their parents, you know, and uh -huh. I've, often, you know, parents are frustrated with behaviors of adolescents. And I say, at, in, yep. at the end of the day, what do you want? Yeah. You want relationship with your child. When they're 25, yeah. you want them to come back and be like, oh, I love my mom and dad. Right. And the same with our spouse, you know, at the end of the day, we want relationship. And so, who's right or who's wrong, not so important. Um, I think, you know, the thing that I love about IPNB and its connection to therapy with adults and parents, mm -hmm. I think of Susan Johnson and her work in um, emotion-focused yeah. couples therapy and just how, yeah. you know, there's something inside of us that gets triggered that creates a response. My best attempt at dealing with this thing, this attachment insecurity that happens in me, mm -hmm. I respond in a certain way. Often that triggers my partner. My partner responds in a way uh, that's their best attempt, which triggers me, and it's this cycle. And if we can, yeah, as you're saying, that one person who's just slightly more regulated can right. recognize that and get us off that train, it can be yeah. really helpful in regulating the whole situation. <laughs> well, even the language you use to describe that is so, is so indicative of, of how this is just a total paradigm shift about humans, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's their best attempt. It might be kind of a crummy one. <laughs> 
<laughs> but in that exact moment, like really believing that people don't mess up on purpose. Like they're yeah. not, you know, hitting a low bar for fun that day mm -hmm. that in that exact moment that really truly was their best attempt. Mm -hmm. And then the next step of IPNB is applying that belief to ourselves because we, that's typically the hardest mm -hmm. place to extend that compassion yeah. is to ourselves and to our own behaviors. How do you recommend people do that? If it's like com being compassionate for themselves and really growing personally in that mm -hmm. way practice 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 that like most of us aren't very good at this mm -hmm. and most of us have behaviors that we're ashamed of or we're embarrassed of or we recognize aren't helpful or helpful for the relationship and we want to you know that all of us have that inner criti critic mm -hmm. right why did you do that you did that again you know better mm. um, and oftentimes the inner critic is even harsher mm. um, and so the first, the first step of that really is noticing it. Some, a lot of people have that inner critic that they're, they're not even noticing is there, mm -hmm. but noticing, wow, this is a really harsh, critical way to talk to myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'll usually invite people, especially if they've never been introduced to the idea of self-compassion to do one of two things. Like one, can't, how easy would it be to just shift that narrative? And instead of saying that was terrible, I can't believe you did that to shift the narrative to like, wow, that was really hard, but I believe you're doing the best you can. Hmm. And some people can't, like that's just way too far for them. Like they, they just can't go there. Mm -hmm. And so then my next offering is, um, I wonder then if you could be compassionate to yourself for how hard it is to have that harsh of an inner critic. Hmm. So maybe we're not asking the inner critic to go away or to shift its compassion, to shift it to compassionate language, but, surely a voice in your head that's being that mean to you is painful. So could you have compassion for that? Yeah. The pain that comes from the inner critic and most people can do that. Mm -hmm. um, especially if I, you know, talk about like, well, what if your child was really struggling or what if your child came to you and told you that they had this horrible voice in their head that was just telling them what a loser they were. Like, mm -hmm. would you feel, compassion for how hard that must be for your child, you know, and then what makes your child more deserving of compassion than you, right? Like yeah. I can kind of walk people through some of these yeah. ideas and oftentimes at least get a, uh, the opportunity to start there, you know, compassion yeah. towards the hurting part that's hurt because of how, how harsh and mean that yeah. inner critic is. And then yeah. it just becomes a practice. Yeah. Practice every single day and reflect, yep. reflecting on, well, that, I'm the inner critic took over and I did not respond in the way that I wanted or, you know, whatever. And exactly. And time. And I think, you know, both with parents and with partners, so much just personal growth, uh, spending time reflecting on one's history, yeah. one's experience and yeah. ways in those interactions with our partners or our children that we are not a fan of. And right. Learning from those yeah. experiences and um, trying it differently next time and experimenting, being kind to ourselves as well. So, yeah. I um, usually tell people, what do you have to lose? You know, that like, it can't, it can't get worse, right? Like this, yeah. in it, you know, what do you have to lose? Just try, just try to see what it's like to be, you know, cu curious or compassionate towards yeah. those parts of you that you really wish would go away. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, 
so I think I've mentioned this before, but I know you are doing lots, I think, are doing offering some trainings for parents for those who are interested in this type of yeah. thing. How would people find you? How would they get involved or signed up for a training that you're giving if they wanted to do that? You can um, head over to my website, which is my last name, Gobel Counseling, G-O-B-B-E-L counseling.com. And yeah, right now, again, I'm, I'm on a, a short clinical sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And so I am only, you know, teaching and training and I do part, you know, for parents and non-professionals. And I, okay. I try to have a wide variety of options online, online webinars that are short and cheap. Mm -hmm. um, longer ones that are a little bit more like time and financial investment. And then I have, um, a couple in-person workshops scheduled. So I try to like, I try to run the gamut of, you know, time and financial investment mm -hmm. to make things really available, um, to anyone who needs it. And, and if somebody wanted to attend one of my webinars and they, um, the finances were a barrier for them. I'd always invite people to, to reach out to me so that I can help, okay. um, decrease that barrier. And then I do lots of teaching and training for therapists too. Cool. Yeah. I, I think there's something you have in Des Moines. Is that for parent this, this coming year? Is that for parents or is that professionals? So I'm going to do both. I'm doing a two day training for, for professionals, which is actually already sold out. Um, it's okay. not till May. And then cool. the next day I'm doing a one day training for parents, non-professionals. It's, it's definitely a parenting. Okay. Um, and that's relatively day. close to where I'm living. So I'm, I'm mentioning okay. that, uh, it's about three hours from where we live. So that would yeah. be within driving distance if parents wanted yep. to go and have an experience of one day, sort of a experience with you that would Des Moines, Iowa would be yep. for them. Cool. Yeah. Exotic Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> they have a trampoline park that I've been to. Yeah. And nobody got injured. Huh. So that was huh. Well, excellent. That is yeah. good. <laughs> well, this has been really enjoyable. It's been such a pleasure um, to get to know you a little bit and have a conversation yeah. with you. I'm so thankful um, for you taking the time to be here today. Absolutely. It's been super fun. And yeah, thanks for the work that you're doing. And I'm such a passionate believer in, in getting resources out there for people in a wide variety of like mediums and you know, formats and again, like financial investments. So I just have so much gratitude for those of you who are serving our, you know, our, our people in this way. Cool. Awesome. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Connected Family Podcast. We're dedicated to helping you build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. If you'd like to continue the conversation about interpersonal neurobiology for parents and partners, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the Connected Family Podcast. This group consists of additional resources, discussion regarding episode topics, and support for building a connected family. You can also follow us on Instagram at Connections Family Counseling or on our website at connectionsquincy.com.